Thank you for worshiping with us together like that. Uh, I, I do love the fact, like, our worship ministry, amazing people, lots of amazing, talented musicians, servant hearts, but it's awesome that what is it? just our hearts expressing and creating a beautiful noise to God, right? And uh, it's awesome that we have this resource to kind of carry us through these times when we're snowed out or when our awesome team needs a break as well, and we just get to still worship together. So thank you for joining us in that, because what it is is not the presentation from the stage. It's actually the presentation from our hearts that is what I think gives worship the beauty and, and what's the point of it. Uh, kids, we don't have a program for you this morning, but we do have some activity sheets if you want to dive into that. Um, but we do have what the content of our lessons we do for our kids' programs downstairs each Sunday. We do keep that online. So on our YouTube page, parents, you can check out YouTube page, and we have uh, each lesson for each week. And it just helps you engage in those faith conversations at home throughout the week. There's resources there to just keep the amazing things going uh, and continuing on. But otherwise, we are going to dive in this morning and just go through it and do a bit of a study, finishing off our mini-series here in Genesis, looking at uh, the story of a man named Jacob. But the first thing I've got to ask is, if anyone here has ever tried to train a cat? Does anyone here even own cats? My wife, us, okay. Okay, so... It's another cat story. It's been like a few weeks since you had a cat story from me, but you're going to get them because we got two cats and I've grown up with cats and we got lots of cats. So hopefully maybe online somebody's got cats as well and they can relate. But I wanted to talk about training a dog, right? Because that makes a bit more sense. You can train a dog, but I have never grown up with dogs. I've just had friends who I got to, they had fun, well-trained dogs I got to play with and enjoy the benefit of. Um, But instead I've grown up with cats, too many cats actually. And uh, even through college, I got my own cat because I just, I don't know why. It's just a weird thing, but they're fun, right? They're easy. Honestly, cats sleep all the time. They, you can kind of neglect them, you know, still being a good owner, you feed them, but you, don't have, you can give them a few days of just nothing and they just go on autopilot. They're pretty simple cats, uh, pets to have. Um, but they do have a handful of habits that are pretty disruptive, right? They got claws. They like to mark their territory everywhere and you need to kind of get that out of them. And the classic is the spray bottle. You just give them a spritz. You try to train them from these disruptive habits. Our cats specifically too have this thing where they really like getting out of the house a lot. They love fresh air. They just want to get out and explore. We have a decent sized backyard that backs onto a green space. And so, yeah, we want to let them go out, but then they keep getting braver and braver. And then they're off in the woods and the forest and they are not very capable cats. So there's no way they're surviving the night out there. And so one particular effort I've made to try training our cats is we got these little uh, Bluetooth chip collars that you can track to see where they're at. You know, they're designed for like lost keys, but I thought, okay, lost cat, I can find a cat. And we started training them. One of the neat things is you can make it play a little tune and we started training the, the cats that like every time they heard the tune, they would get a treat and they had to come back inside the house. So it started working, right? They'd be off who knows where in the forest. We'd hit the thing on our phone. They'd come running in, get a treat and thought, trained a cat. What an accomplishment. Until, uh, and it wasn't even very long after I thought I was successful that I realized like, oh, they're actually not coming back. It was only when they really, you know, actually wanted a treat. But if they're like, I'm enjoying the sun on the rocks, like, see the cat literally 20 feet away, things beeping away, shaking the bag of treats. Nah, I'm happy. I'm good. And I realized, because see, here's the thing. When you're training an animal, you're trying to 
kind of condition and overcome their natural instinct and kind of rewrite their habits. And when it comes to it, and you know, after eight years and counting of futile efforts and trying to train our cats, I realized you can't train a cat. It doesn't work. And for those of you who are saying you can, I don't believe you, or you're just trying to show off, and uh, you just have a very special cat, maybe. But here's the thing, we like to control things, right? We like control in our life. Maybe not cats, we wish we could control cats, but whether, it's, whether you're a self-proclaimed control freak or you're a little bit more of a subdued kind of personality and you pretend everything's fine, but you still just really wish things went a little bit more the way you wish things went all the time, we love having control over everything. It's not really a secret because even when you look at like the strongest marketing methods for products, for services, it is things that offer you more control in your life, control of your time, of your resources. You buy a fancy car, it's got controls for everything under the sun, so you can have a separate temperature control than your spouse sitting in the seat next to you and from the back seats, right? Everything is marketed towards more control. Even philosophies, all the self-help books out there offer more control of your emotions and your circumstances, of your wealth. Ultimately, we also like thinking we have a bit of control of our destinies, of what's coming up next, of what our path is and what we deserve. And we try to wrangle all those factors around us so that we can just create the safety expectations for what we we think should be coming to us. We like control. And we're not alone in this. This isn't like some new Western millennial thing that we're just starting to do and dive into it, this is going all the way back to what we've been doing for the last couple of weeks here, this being the last of a three-part series. We're taking a look at the biblical narrative of a man named Jacob who wrestled with control and literally wrestled with God in his life. So just to give you the big picture, the idea, and if you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Genesis 25 to 33, kind of moving through a bit. But the big picture idea of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it's a historical narrative of God creating everything, and, but specifically creating and molding and shaping a people, a nation called Israel at the time, but just a method of revealing himself to humanity and working out his ultimate plan over thousands of years. It was the start of all of that. And the majority of this book, Genesis actually, tons of chapters, up to over 50 chapters, is focusing on one specific family line. And it begins with a man named Abraham, who's kind of the first man that God actually made an open promise with to fulfill, a, fulfill and create a nation through. He said, you're going to be my people. I'm going to bless your family. You're going to explode and multiply, and I'm going to be revealing myself. So Abraham was kind of the first man. And the thing was, so he was old and childless, and his wife was old, and they were childless. And so they were trying to, like, how's this going to happen? So in their old age, they had a miracle child named Isaac. So moving on from Abraham, Isaac, and then Isaac has two sons. They were twins, and one of the twins who was born first, technically, and this is in, important in a uh, primogenitor culture where the firstborn son kind of is the, the focus of carrying on the family line and the honor and the inheritance and everything. So the firstborn son named Esau, but closely following his twin brother, holding on to the heel of Esau, comes out right after easy birth for parents who are given birth to twins, nice and fast. Um, and the baby is named Jacob. 
And Jacob literally, so if there's any Jacobs here, the name derived, you know, we love deep meanings on names, means heel grabber. Fun name. His brother, who was very hairy, the Bible describes, Esau means hairy, so let's call the baby Harry. So parents, fun names, name your kids based on how hairy they are. Or heel grabber is actually an idiom, common language for deceiver. So nice name, polite, right? You are a deceiving baby. Heel grabber, Jacob. It's great, I love it. But anyways, when these twins were still in the, in the womb, in their... Uh, uh, Rebecca, their mother, she was in some distress and God spoke to her and prophesied and essentially established that you've got twins in your womb and the one that's coming second is going to be the greater one, is going to be amassing power and wealth. I'm going to be working through him. He's going to be a great nation. He's going to have a blessing. And, and so essentially you have this baby who is born with this amazing promise for a blessing uh, and that's Jacob. So, but the thing is he comes into the world not really set up to achieve that. He was born second, technically, right? So over the course of Jacob's early lifetime, Jacob takes an interesting approach to this promise. I'm just trying to give a synopsis. This is over the course of a few chapters, Genesis 25, 26, 27. And he, he takes an interesting approach to this promise that's been bestowed on his life. So he decides to use his wit and his deceit, his namesake, and all the other as assets to him, his own talents to control and force the path of his life to look like what the prophecy God put on him was. And how that ended up looking like was by uh, essentially taking an abusive situation and manipulating his brother into giving him his birthright. So he stole Esau's birthright. And then he tricked his old and blind father into blessing him and essentially promising him the full inheritance. Not a great son move, by the way, which naturally this brought out hatred and anger and death threats and forced Jacob out of his home and on the run for his life. So not really going the way Jacob hoped it would go. What's happening is Jacob thought he could wrangle and control his own life, backfired on him really bad. And then we get to this really interesting point, and we're going to kind of read through it a little bit together. So Jacob's on the run in the wilderness for his life, away from home. And we get to this moment Jacob has where he's kind of left without anything. The Bible sets it up as literally saying nowhere to sleep. So he grabs a rock for a pillow and goes to sleep on that. So we're in, J we're in Genesis chapter 28, verse 10. So you got your phones. I do have it here behind me. It's going to come up on the screen, but read along too because there's lots of stuff you get out of just literally reading the Bible and not just listening to me verbatim reading it off. Dig into it yourself. But Genesis 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are laying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south." All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. What a fascinating, strange story. 
I've had bad sleeps on bad pillows at hotels, right? And woken up. You know, imagine the headache Jacob woke up with that processing the data and the rock he got to sleep on. But I haven't had quite a dream like that. Kind of some clarity. But so what's interesting? Let's dive into this a little bit. He's given this vision of a stairway-like structure, and it's been commonly called Jacob's Ladder, but really it's actually quite clear biblically. The words are focusing on this idea of stairway, like this terraced kind of stepping thing, and what it actually really looks like, I, I picture in my mind, you know, in like the bay, the opposing escalators, like coming up and down, that's just like instantly coming up in my head, but what, what actually the picture that's here is likely are these things called, I should have put a picture behind me here, but uh, ziggurats, which in ancient Mesopotamia, they were like pyramid structures with kind of terraced sides, kind of like giant staircases. And for the pagan gods, these were places of worship for pagan gods. At the very top, they were like a giant staircase. There would be a shrine for sacrifices to these pagan gods. And God's using that kind of an image to give to Jacob. So something he would have seen, he would have known, but he changes it up. He kind of flips it on his head a little bit because the, the contrast where you have this shrine to a pagan God where you go up, instead here, God is placed on it and he's sending down. These angels are coming up and down and involved. And what this is, is a confirmation of the promise that Jacob's grandfather had this blessing that God told Abraham and then also spoke and reaffirmed with Isaac and then now is giving the same thing to Jacob saying, let me give you some clarity. I'm involved in your life. I am in control. I have a plan for you. I love it. It's, it's quite beautiful, right? Rather than this demand of you come up to my level and put in the work to get there, God says, I'm in control. I have a plan. And really beautiful too, again, because it, with this idea of the ziggurats where they were set in a place, that's where your God is. You go too far away, you can't make it back to do the worship. God actually says, and I won't leave you until I've finished what I will do. I'm not done with you. So God is in control. He has a plan. He sees what's coming ahead. And, and just like the song we sang this morning too, I love it so much. There's no power of hell, no scheme of man, no anything we attempt that can separate us from God. He stays there. That's the promise. So that's the promise God gives to Jacob. And it's reaffirmed. Jesus gives the same one to us. How does Jacob respond? Like, this is a pretty good thing, right? This is awesome. This should be like, take the wheel, God. I love it. He responds. He worships. He commits 10% of all the wealth he has from his inheritance. It's stolen inheritance, but all the stuff he's going to give. He kind of, he commits this thing. It's actually the second time we see this. His grandfather, Abraham, said the same thing. Like, I'm going to take 10% of everything, give it back to you, God. Last week, we talked about the idea of generosity, committing generosity, kind of just a reaffirmation of that, kind of an idea of ratioed giving. But so does Jacob go on to live happily ever after? God works through him. Unfortunately, Jacob, just like us, still loves control. And he knows he's talented. He's a clever businessman. He, he wants to achieve things in his life and make it work. And God's not done with Jacob yet either, because God sees that in Jacob. So he needs to be trained. And when I read through this narrative, I sometimes wonder if, from the 10,000-foot view, we've known the end of the story. We're like, hey, God's training Jacob. In the moment, Jacob probably thought he was still trying to wrangle and wrestle and train God in the moment. Because here's what happened next. The, the next steps, unfortunately, in Jacob's journey 
he gets a bit of a taste of his own medicine. He's wandering, he goes off from the place where he had the dream, he's wandering, gets into his uncle's land, uh, gets a job, falls in love with a woman, says, I will work for seven years to earn the right to marry this woman. He, he, she was beautiful, wanted to marry her, he was in love with her. Uh, and then the father was also deceitful and also witty, and Jacob's met his match. So after seven years of work, he gets tricked, marries a different woman, didn't love her, didn't like her, stuck with her now, worked seven more years to get the woman that he did love. 14 years. Has anyone dated that long? It's impressive. Come on, Jacob. So 14 years. And then even in that too, Jacob wants to move on with his own life. He's like, let me build a family. And now Laban, his uncle, is like, hey, let's, let's make some business deals. But he starts trying to trick him and remove stuff. And so there's this battle of wits. And Jacob's like, I can meet your match. I'm going to do some clever manipulating. Ends up with Jacob slowly accumulating all of his uncle's resources, all his uncle's wealth, most of his uncle's land and territory. Again, what happens? It's not a really fun family dinner anymore, right? So his uncle's mad, and he's on the run for fear of his life once again, with nowhere to go, with no security, no place. See, I think we sometimes think we can take a look when we get those moments where God enters into our lives or God wakes us up, right? When we kind of are on the run like Jacob was the first time and God reveals himself. I find it so interesting. It's typically when God will actually reveal himself or give us a course correction when we're willing to listen to something that's not just our own thoughts and our own power and our own control and commands. God gave Jacob this, this vision of him involved and this promise and, and we have those moments sometimes. We have these moments of clarity. We're like, oh, okay, God, you're good. I love that. But then we go right back to our own thing. And I think we try training God in our own life. We th think about it like this way. When you want stuff to start happening better for you, going the way you want, you start praying harder in those moments when you need something from God, right? And you almost start trying to make a transactional relationship with God of like, I'll do this for you so you can do this with me. It's exactly what I tried doing with my cats, I'll give you treats if you do this for me. And, it, and this mentality, right? Even think about it. We love control in such a small way. When you find something on like Facebook Marketplace, Craigslist, right? And it's a good deal for a product, whatever. You go to, go, go to buy a bike and you go there and you negotiate a bit and you haggle and you get it for a slight discounted price and you're so stoked because you won that interaction. Meanwhile, Behind the scenes, the guy posted it for a little bit higher, knowing he's going to have to come down. He's one too, but we love the fact that we had control in that situation. It sneaks in in such small ways, these ideas that we love control in our life. And, you know, I'm talking here big picture faith and God, but even if you're not exploring faith, it's just language, whether you call it like karma. If, if it's like do good things so good things happen, if you do bad things, bad things happen. So you start to try to balance and play a game with the universe. You try to wrestle and wrangle and control the universe. You're trying to train the situations around you to make it work the way you think things should be working. Even with superstitions, uh, little things that, you know, honestly seem, we try doing little dumb things to get little bits of control. Like when I play card games and board games, I have a specific way I always grab cards because I think that'll help me. But again, you know, if, if call it math, in my head, I think I've convinced myself this makes the most sense. I just like the control. I think it'll help me. But honestly, if you take a look at the stats, it's not in my favor. I'm not winning most of the games I play. 
I can't even get past it too, like those little bits of superstition. Uh, whenever I have gone flying, I don't know where this started, but you enter the plane, you have that like moment, that seal, that cockpit thing. And I, I just, I got to like knock on the hull, right? Just to make sure that there's metal there and they didn't cheap out and use the plastic on the side, right? Just I could get it's metal, it's going to fly, we won't crash. And if I don't get the chance to do that, I think there's no way I don't have control because I didn't get to check the plane. Like it matters, it was more dangerous driving to the airport and I don't check my car, it's leaking oil the whole time. It doesn't make sense, but we love to gain control in our lives. And it's no small thing when we start looking at things in our life where we try training God or training the universe or people around us and controlling everything because as futile as that is, like training a cat, it's not ever going to work. You can't train God. You also miss out on what God might be training you to be doing, what he's trying to do as a work in your life, what he's trying to bring you through so that you're prepared better in the future, like with Jacob, what he might be equipping you for and leading you towards. So this becomes a very real and visceral lesson for Jacob. In Genesis 32, Jacob, once again, he's on the run, right? Fear for his life. Uh, His uncle and his cousins and all of that family trying to kill him because Jacob kind of amassed all of their land and wealth and resources. Uh, Jacob has this really interesting encounter with a man who we discover in the scripture shortly after is a manifestation of God. And Jacob wrestles with this man. He's wrestling with God. So literally his whole life of wrestling with God has become a very real moment of wrestling. And Jacob doesn't give up. And he wrestles throughout the night. He puts up a solid fight until God decides one one moment that he's like, okay, I'm done with this, Jacob. I'm done with you still wrestling. Breaks his hip, dislocates it, different translations, which like one of the worst injuries, by the way, for soft tissue damage, how painful a dislocated hip is horrible. But picking this up, Genesis 32, uh, verse 26. So this is the man uh, speaking to Jacob, the man who is the manifestation of God. The man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. The man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, which means wrestles with God because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Your perseverance is paying off, Jacob. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask me my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Penel, saying, it's because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. What I love about the story is it's only up at this point where Jacob is truly humbled, truly broken. He's tried many times in his life to gain control using all the things at his disposal until the point where now he's in fear for his family. He's on the run. He's in his brother's land again, the brother who hated him, who wanted to kill him. He's like, nothing's going on. I'm going to lose my family. I'm going to lose everything. There's no way I'm getting land. This promise is not working out. Completely humbled and broken and has no more bargaining chips left to play with. And then God comes in and gives him one more lesson And Jacob then reflects and says, that should have been it for me. But my life was spared. He finally sees that God is in full control and there's nothing Jacob can do to train God or trick or manipulate or control that kind of a power in his life. Going on just from there, Genesis 33, verse 1. This is now Jacob after this moment because he's in fear. He's 
preparing to meet his brother, who he is certain is going to kill him. And this moment here is so revealing of how God in control and God at work is better than anything we can ever do. Whenever we try wrangling and wrestling with life, we try taking full control, and then it blows up in our face, and there's just, what, us to blame, right? Because we don't have the full picture, and we are not as good as God is at doing these things. We get to see it a little bit here. So Genesis 33, verse 1, Jacob expecting that his brother's going to kill him. So Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. Like, here's the army. This is it. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, the four women who he's having children with, building up his family. And he put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He literally starts using his family as shields. Like, okay, maybe they'll soften the army and the blow a bit. He's like, this is it. Sacrifice is coming. Put us at the end. Also not a good move, Jacob not very sacrificial. Then he himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him and they wept. Jacob thought he was dead. Jacob thought everything he had done to control his life had only brought him to the place of like, that's it. I failed. Nothing's happening. And yet God in control does so many better things behind the scenes than we can even imagine. Esau rightfully should have been holding a grudge. He lost everything he was born for, and he had to fight and fend for himself. But the thing is, God the whole time was at work in Esau's life, sustaining him and helping correct what had happened to him as well. The Holy Spirit is often at work in our lives when we don't pay attention to it, and especially when we're kind of a third party to it and we think we can do a better work than God in somebody's life, we miss how beautiful God's interaction and transformational work, the redemption can be. Let me give you a perfect example. I've had these moments. I don't have a big temper, but I've had a handful of moments in my life uh, where there's like this impending conflict coming up, right? Sometimes too related to like church work, and there's just this conflict. I gotta have this hard conversation. It's gonna be big and heated, right? There's been nasty emails back and forth. I've got the biblical data. I did the studies. Like, I'm ready to go because this person is wrong, and I just want to fight, and it's going to feel so good, right? Because I'm going to tell them what's right and tell them what I think, and, and I'm boiling, and I'm ready to go, and I get to the place, and stupid me, I didn't even think that God could be at work in this situation, and almost without fail, And God is protecting. I'm going to simmer you down, Grant. Don't go nuts on this. God's at work in somebody's life, completely transforming everything about them. The direction, I couldn't have even seen a potential outcome for somebody who just humbled, repented, changed things, and in that changed me because I thought, wow, my approach would have been disastrous and destructive to me and to everyone around. But God at work works in one person's life with with grace and love and impacts everything else around him. God is so much better at controlling our lives than we are. What's amazing is all of this happened thousands and thousands of years ago. It wasn't just a stopping point. It wasn't just one promise God made to one man where he did say the promise that God made to Jacob, I will not leave you until, I have prom- until I've done all of what I've promised you. And that whole story, I'm going to impact the entire world through you, through God's people, right? So then thousands of years later, Jesus comes into the picture. 
and gives us an even more clear revelation of what that looks like, of what God in control in our lives looks like, and what surrendering our attempts at control in our lives can look like. And I just found one small piece here that I thought just helps kind of cap off this entire idea of trusting in God's control, trusting in God's plan and picture, and trusting that God has not left us, that God leaves us here. And this is in John 14, 27. Jesus is speaking with his disciples who are just coming up to this point where they're scared that Jesus is going to leave. They know Jesus is going to be arrested. They know he's going to die. And they're thinking, like, then what do we do, Jesus, if you're not here? How do we deal with this invisible God who you say is in control, but I don't get to actually experience like you're in control? So Jesus says this in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. And here's key. I do not give to you these things the way the world gives, where we just when we take control and we even help somebody, even with our best intentions, we just give something to somebody and then that's it and we leave it and it goes off in autopilot. Jesus says, I will not leave you. And he's talking about here giving us the Holy Spirit, the presence in our life of God who actually speaks to us and transforms. So it finishes there. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid, which is almost always the motivator behind our attempts at control of everything in life is our fear that we don't know what's going to happen, so if we take control, then we know. Even if the outcome sucks, we know. So the story we see in Jacob's life, the story we see through Jesus' work, the story that we have so many testimonies of in our own lives, of all of us here, whether we're joining online or on campus, is the times when God works at our life, and it's better than anything we could have imagined. That's our gift to people, too, is sharing those testimonies, sharing those opportunities, sharing those times where God has done better when he's in control than we have done when we've been in control. And sometimes brag about your failures, right? Jacob's whole life was recorded so that we could read it. Millions and billions of people, thousands of years later, through all the history, getting to see the disaster Jacob made of his life so that God's amazing work can be celebrated instead. That's the focus and the piece I want to leave with. I actually love for this morning too when we were talking about when we want to be in control, we got to make church service happen. But it snowed and the nature had a different plan, right? What do we do with that? Our, our goal here is to let God have more control in our lives of our circumstances, of our situations, and for us to start trusting in that, trusting in the peace that Jesus promised us to leave with us, and to start listening to the Holy Spirit. Because the more times we keep putting the efforts into take control and to demand and run things in our life, the less we get to actually hear the work God might be doing in our lives, even in the wrestling moments. And what I do just want to leave here, I didn't actually pull up the verse, but the point that I think is so clear and critical and where this wrestling match that Jacob had with God, it's Genesis 32 and verse 25, is that Jacob doesn't let go. Even though he has no chance in winning, he thinks he's got a chance here, but he still doesn't let go. He knows there's something worth gaining in this moment. So even in the wrestling, even when it's messy, even when it's chaotic, even when it's nuts, don't let go of the attempts to wrestle with and cling to God. And then he'll reveal himself at the, when the moment's right. And it might hurt. Jacob never walked without a limp again after that moment, but God never left him either. And through the rest of Genesis, 20 more chapters, gets to see his kids and his kids' kids impact through the nations, through Egypt, through all of Israel, the ancient Mediterranean area, the growth that happened. God's promise came to full fruition, and we are now living in the thousands of years later part of that. The dust of the earth spread well beyond just the ancient Middle East and became global.
So God, I just thank you for your control, God, that you have a better sense of anything we could ever fathom. God, it's, it's, it's an act of faith. It's a leap of trust that we open ourselves up to what seems like a scary moment to see what you can actually do in a situation when we let go and we trust and we put faith in to see how you can work in our lives. God, and in the lives of people around us. Help us see places where we are gripping on so tight to our own ways, God, whether it's wit and deceit or our talents and skills, God, that we think we can control stuff. God, help reveal those things in our life so that we can let you take the reins and show us an even better way, God, so we can see your amazing plan come to fruition. God, I just pray that you bless everyone who's joined us online or on campus here today, God, this time that we, we just get to celebrate you God, we get to celebrate the fact that you're involved, that you are here on earth, angels ascending and descending. God, that you're not distant and disconnected, but you are present in our lives. So God, we lift up this morning to you. We lift up the celebrations and the time and the fun that we get to have in the snow to you. We just ask for safety too as we go from here, as we enjoy and play together, whether we're getting together with friends or family or just chilling. God, we just pray a blessing on this place, this time, and on all of us here as we go from this week on. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you, everybody, for joining us online on campus. I just want to throw a plug in that we are hoping to, uh, as I'm already seeing par- cars are filling the parking lot, the Griner Hill is going to be an amazing, fun place to go sledding, tobogganing, playing in the snow, snowmen. So what we're going to do, we've got hot chocolate. Uh, if you'd like to be part of it, we're just figuring out some plans. We're going to serve hot chocolate and get involved and just bless the, the community, the neighbors that we've got here. Everyone is invited to enjoy that. Maybe you got to go home and get some snow pants. But we're going to be doing that uh, probably like 11.30ish or so up until about noon, just having a great afternoon here. Go play in the snow. Next week is our AGM meeting, and we do have on our website and online and through the emails our report booklet just of stories from ministry leaders of all the stuff they've been up to and opportunities coming up this year. We also have a few printed copies out in the Welcome Center you could grab if you need that. So... Other than that, thank you so much for coming out this morning, and God bless you.